Welcome to the final episode of our three-part series with Johan Hari, best-selling author of Chasing the Scream. Mr. Hari talks about dealing with the underlying causes of addiction and the possibility of taking a fresh approach to the war on drugs in today's episode. Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. So now let's pivot back to Switzerland and what we've learned there. It's quite the contrary to our system in terms of dealing with this, dealing with drug addiction and dealing with it with compassion as, a, as opposed to additional causing additional pain and suffering. So some would say, though, Switzerland such a small country. I mean, our dynamics are entirely different from that. So let's speak to other countries that you've uh, where you've witnessed decriminalization or legalization of drugs and how it's played out there. Can I just say one other thing before that, in case I forget, that I think is really important to think about the opioid crisis, uh, which is very related to the, what, I'm, what you're asking about, which is essentially, for example, Portugal. There's something that happened in Britain that I think really helps us to understand. This is partly what my next book is about. Uh, it's called Lost Connections. Um, the thing happened in Britain a long time ago that I thought about a lot when I was meeting people, going to the epicenters of the opioid crisis. So in the 18th century, this thing happened in Britain called the gin craze. Basically, there was a, a, a mass outbreak of alcoholism and lots of people died. And it's hard to piece together, you know, things that happened so long ago, but it does seem to be real. There was a really, really big outbreak of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. What happened is huge numbers of people were driven out of the countryside where their families had lived for centuries into these disgusting urban slums in Liverpool, Manchester and, England, and London. And they lost everything that gave life meaning to them. They lost their social networks. They lost their friends. They lost the work they They'd grown up, that their parents had taught them, and their grandparents had taught them, and they were really disorientated and lost. Any idea what drove them out? <laughs> oh, it was um, industrialization and the the right, you know, the enclosure of the land, and was part of, part of the movement towards the kind of economy we have. Now. Okay, industrial and, revolution type. Yeah, um, early industrialization, along with other factors, and um, and there was this mass outbreak of alcoholism. And at the time, what people said is, "Look at this evil drug, gin. Look at what it does to people. It destroys them. These people." Peddling gin, they're evil. The kind of equivalent of just saying no, the equivalent of saying cut off their oxycontin. Um, now, when we look back at that, we know it can't be gin that caused that crisis because I mean, there was you know, there's, it, there's a famous painting from the time by the painter Richard Hogarth where you know a woman is drinking so much gin that her baby falls off a high place, and 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 things like that really did happen. But now, when we look back, we know well it can't have been gin that caused it. 
because anyone in Britain can buy gin. Anyone listening to this now in, in the United States can go and buy gin. You're not going to be that far away from the nearest liquor store. And relatively few people are drinking so much gin that their baby falls off a wall, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not the availability of gin that caused it. What happened is people were deprived of the things that give life meaning and they were really distressed and disorientated. And in that situation, a lot of people sought out anesthetics. Very similar thing is happening in the United States today. Think about that woman in Cleveland. Or think about a Wall Street banker. You know, we're not just talking about poverty. Think about a Wall Street banker. They're completely cut off from the things that give life meaning. They've been taught to value disgusting, depraved things. They, they're taught to regard it as a sign of pride that they don't, have any, that they don't see their families, they don't have any friends, that you've got to be ruthless, you've got to be cruel. Uh, you know, we're living in a culture where people are being deprived of the things that give life meaning. And a lot of people are finding it unbearable. And that's not a pathology. That's a wholly understandable reaction to what has happened to our culture. And so we should talk about drug policy because that's an important part of it. But actually, this is part of a much wider social problem. This is what my book, Lost Connections, is about, my new book. Um, that, you know, it's not a coincidence that we're having an addiction crisis at the same time as we're having a depression crisis, at the same time that we're having a, 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 a suicide crisis, at the same time we're having a, a, a significant increase in violence, at the same time that for the first time in the history of peacetime history of the United States, there's a fall in average male life expectancy for white men. These are interconnected crises. And we're, we're kind of, it's tempting to kind of see them as like technical glitches, you know, like there's some kind of fault in the system. They're actually perfectly understandable responses. There's a very challenging line in Marianne Faithfull, who people might remember, she was Mick Jagger's girlfriend, was a very cool, very good uh, rock singer. Uh, she sang one of the best songs on the Thelma Louise soundtrack. She has this beautiful line in her memoir. I might be getting it slightly wrong, but she says something. She had a heroin addiction. She has this very challenging line. I had to think about this for a long time. She says, heroin saved my life because if it wasn't for heroin, I would have killed myself at that point. And, you know, when I spent time in Keene in New Hampshire, for example, I kept thinking of that line. Hmm. Now, that is not to say heroin is a good solution. Of course it's not. Sure. It causes all sorts of other problems, and it is itself a tragedy if the best option you've got is to be taking a very powerful opiate. But we've got to understand the deeper causes of this. And I think, you know, I don't want to make a partisan point, but I think um, Trump is a manifestation of this as well. You know, all sorts of these isolated, lonely people who've been taught to value the wrong things and deserve much better in life and who've been humiliated, feel humiliated by our culture will turn to drastic, unhelpful solutions ultimately unproductive solutions. So we've got to be talking much more. Bruce Alexander, who did the Rat Park experiment, says we talk all the time in addiction about individual recovery. That's important. That has real value. But we need to talk much more about social recovery. Something's gone wrong with us, not just as individuals, but as a group. And we need to be looking much more, not much more. We need to look at both, of course. It's not a contest. But we need to be talking a lot about social recovery and how we recover as a society. And, you know, you just look at the the... The, you know, the, 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 the disasters that are spreading in our culture, I think everyone can see this real, you know, I've been just been all over the US for the last two months doing research for something else. And, you know, you feel it everywhere from Trump supporters to Hillary supporters to Bernie supporters. It's a really deep and you feel it here in Britain with the catastrophe, the Brexit that's happening. And of course, you know, we're talking at a time when Spain might be about to start a civil war. These real, really deep um pathologies that are manifesting in our culture, our relations to the fact that we're living in a culture 
that deprives us of our ability to meet our psychological needs for a lot of people, our underlying psychological needs. So, so addressing them anyway. uh, allows many of these Sorry. problems and, and these issues to go away. And you've witnessed that. And you witnessed that not only in Switzerland, but Portugal. So let's talk a little bit about Portugal and what happened there. Yeah. Yeah. So, in, and I think it illustrates this principle quite well, actually. So, in the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in the world. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is absolutely extraordinary. And every year, they tried the American way more. They arrested more people. They imprisoned more people. And every year, the, the problem got worse. And um, one day, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and effectively said, look, we can't carry on like this. What are we going to do? And they just did something really bold, something really original, something no one had done since before Harry Anslinger. They basically said, well, should we like ask some scientists to figure out what would actually work? Which <laughs> is like, wow, really original. Hmm. So they, they, they set up a scientific panel led by an extraordinary man I got to know called Dr. Juan Gulao, who had set up the first drug treatment program in, in Portugal after the fall of the dictatorship in the early 70s. And they basically went away for two years and they looked at all the evidence, including Rat Park and a lot of the other things we talked about. And they came back and they basically said, uh, decriminalize all drugs, from cannabis to crack, everything, the whole lot. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we used to spend on screwing people's lives up and spend it instead on turning their lives around. And what's interesting is quite different to what we think of as drug treatment in the US and Britain. So, for example, one of the things they did was set up a big program of job subsidies for people with addiction problems. So say you used to be a mechanic, you developed a drug problem, go to a garage and they say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. Um, they set up a big program of microloans so people with addiction problems could set up and run small businesses about things that they cared about. The goal was to say to every person with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you, we value you, we're on your side, you deserve a good life, we want you back. And by the time I went to Portugal, it was 13 years since this began, it's now 16 years. Um, and the results are very clear. The biggest scientific study of this, which was published in the British Journal of Criminology, found there had been an enormous fall in injecting drug use, enormous fall in all the problems related to addiction. It's not a magic bullet, they still have problems, of course, but there had been an extraordinary transformation. And um, it tells you something, right? Like what they concentrated on was making people's lives better, not making their lives worse. And that, and that significantly reduced the, the problems. And I remember one of the, again, one of the most moving conversations I had was I went to interview this guy called Juan Figuera. Unfortunately, he subsequently died, but people can listen to some of my conversation with him on, on the book, Swear or Chasing the Screams website. Um, he, he, had led, he was the top drug cop in Portugal, and he had led the opposition to the decriminalization. And he'd said, well, lots of people think, you know, this is going to be a disaster. Um, it's going to be a car crash. Um, you know, we'll have a massive increase in drug use and addiction. And he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he spent so many years arresting and harassing drug users when he could have been helping them turn their lives around. Hmm. And to wow. me, that was... You don't often hear people in public life talk about how they've been completely wrong. No. And he was such a decent man, Juan Figuera, such a good man, an admirable man. And um, yeah, it was very moving to me. So I think this, what, what Portugal illustrates is that underlying principle. What they did is two things. You stop the criminal punishment. They did, they did have some prescription. They don't prescribe heroin, but they prescribe methadone and other opiates, um, some other opiates. And, um, but again, it was... You, you deal with the drug, the drug part of the problem, but you also deal with the underlying, underlying problem. And I think they're both very important. But actually, the second one is, is if anything, even more, more important. 
And this is something I'm thinking about a lot, partly because I've just written a book about it, but also just because it's, it's really frightening. It's really frightening what's happening to our culture. Yeah. And we need to be having conversations about how we, how we reconnect and we rediscover each other, you know, when we're in this kind of vortex of this, you know, um, I mean, to me, the, the, there are two things that are terrifying about Trump. There's what Trump will do and is doing, which is terrifying. But there's also the fact that so many people could look at this obviously deranged, sick person who represents such sick values and, and, and want him to be the most powerful person in the world. And I think that's, I'm not judging those, those people. I've met a lot of Trump voters who are good and decent people who are in a lot of pain. And so I don't want to shame and stigmatize them, but that's, that, that's not going to get us anywhere. And screaming at them that they're racist is not going to help anything. We've got to understand why these things are happening. And, and these are really, really deep problems, but there are things we can do. And I talk a lot in the next book about, I can't talk about it too much now, but the, 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 because the book's not out yet and then my publishers will <laughs> criticize me, but the, tell me off, but the, you know, we, we have to look at the solutions for how we rediscover each other and rediscover meaningful values and a meaningful way of living that people want to be present for. So recently, the United Nations and the World Health Organization issued a call for all drugs to be decriminalized. Uh, that was just this past summer. Do you ever see a time in the future when the U.S. would decriminalize drugs? And if so, describe that. Sure. Look, I'm gay. And uh, if you had told me, well, I'm, th I'm only 38, I'm not so old. I, didn't, I think I even heard the phrase gay marriage until I was like 20. It didn't even occur to me. You know, like my, my friend Andrew Sullivan wrote the first book about gay marriage ever in like 1994. And people said he was completely insane, crazy. If I think a lot about Andrew, I, I was just uh, staying with him actually because, you know, I mean, so in 1990, in the early 90s, Andrew, Andrew Sullivan, a lot of people will know his work. Andrew Sullivan was diagnosed with HIV, which was a death sentence at that time. His friends were dying all around him. And he goes to Provincetown, um, you know, in the Cape to a house he had there to basically thinking he's going to die and the last thing he's ever going to do is write this book Making the Case for Gay Marriage which was he thought was like a utopian thing that might happen a hundred years from now and he writes this book an incredible book called Virtually Normal I really recommend people read it and sometimes when I get kind of down about this and I think this is such a big fight I try to imagine going back in time and saying to Andrew that summer in Provincetown in 1994 okay you're not going to believe me but a bit more than 20 years from now 25 years from now the Supreme Court, in their ruling, making gay marriage uh, mandatory across the United States, is going to quote this book. You're going to be alive. You're going to survive this. You're actually going to have a very long life because there's going to be a drug invented that treats this. Um, and you're, I'm, going to, I'm going to speak to you the day after that Supreme Court ruling when the president of the United States is going to invite you to the White House. And he's going to have lit up, lit up the, the White House in the rainbow flag colors. And he's going to invite you to dinner to thank you for what you did in making this happen. Oh, and by the way, that president... He's going to be black, right? That would have sounded like the most ridiculous. It would have, I mean, he would have, you know, it would have just seemed like an insult to him because it would have been so absurd, right? It'd be sure. like you saying to me, so, Johan, 25 years from now, the Supreme Court's going to legalize crack and uh, you're going to be invited by a transgender president to celebrate in the White House, right? Like, I mean, it would just seem like preposterous nonsense. Um, it happened, right? Andrew's alive. The Supreme Court quoted him in the gay marriage ruling. He went for dinner with President Obama to be congratulated. Extraordinary change. You and I have lived through extraordinary changes. Now, we can live through extraordinary improvements, like the treatment of gay people. We can live through extraordinary regression, like some of the problems we've been talking about. It's up to us, right? That gay marriage didn't just happen because of some, you know, uh, magical fairy came along and brought it. It happened because extraordinary, extraordinarily large numbers of brave, ordinary citizens banded together and demanded it. A lot of them gay, a lot of them heterosexual. Banded together 
and you know were brave and persuaded their fellow citizens and didn't stop until they got it. So um, from that, I mean, you know, so anything can happen. We can go through terrible regression, or we can go through incredible progress. It entirely depends on us. And one thing I would say about this war, this hundred and two-year-old war, is, you know, the one thing you can say in defense of it is we've given it a fair shot, right? The U.S. has spent a trillion dollars. You've imprisoned millions of your fellow citizens. You've killed hundreds of thousands of people in Colombia, Mexico, and Afghanistan, and other places. And at the end of all that, you can't even keep drugs out of your prisons, where you pay someone to walk around the damn wall the whole time. Which gives you some idea of how effective this war is going to be with keeping drugs out of the entire United States. It is a ludicrous nonsense. And very often when I'm doing TV things to discuss this, they'll say, who should we get to be on the other side? And they can't find anyone, because people won't even publicly defend this. It's really hard to find anyone who will defend the war on drugs. You get a few people whose job is to defend the war on drugs. They're paid to do it. But they're basically the only ones left, right? This is a discredited policy. It's been a disaster. And the longer we wait, the longer the, the, the longer this goes on, the more people die. So, and actually, you know, I was quite optimistic about this debate, but the, I have to say the direction of the debate about prescription opiates is really problematic and shows how... How deeply, I mean, basically, people's, basically, people are basically saying the Nancy Reagan speech, left, even liberals, my, my people and lefties are basically saying the Nancy Reagan speech about opiates. The evil drug dealers have done it and we need to stop the evil drug dealers. That's basically what people are saying. We're back to this extraordinarily simplistic, primitive, wrong way of thinking about it. And that that was just below the surface is, is disconcerting to me. So look, it depends on what we do. And if we do the right thing and we fight and we don't stop, and we, you know, go through the discouragements and the bad times and we band together, we can, yeah, we can have a sensible policy. Um, Switzerland is a really conservative place and they did it, you know, um, and it's not so small. It would be one of the bigger, I mean, it's nowhere like it's 7 million people. So, you know, it would be one of the medium sized states in the United States. Um, so, yeah, we, we can do this if we band together. So you've traveled the world closely researching this issue for more than three years now. Have you seen some programs that are working in communities that you feel as though are worth talking about, individual programs that we might have uh, spend a couple of minutes talking about now that would be useful here in the United States? Other than, you know, obviously the big, vast countrywide program uh, and programs being decriminalization, but are there individual, you know, community-based programs that you've found that have been particularly yeah. effective in so fighting mostly the they were where epidemic? people banded together to fight for, for bigger change. So, for example... I spent some time in Vancouver with the extraordinary people who... So a group of homeless street users in Vancouver banded together. There was um, a homeless street addict in Vancouver called Bud Osborne, who's one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met, who, uh, again, in, it's around the year 2000, he was, he was just watching his friends die all around him. And um, he just thought, well, I can't just sit here and watch everyone die. What am I going to do? But he also thought, as he would have put it, I'm a homeless junkie. What am I going to do? And Bud... He had this idea one day. What was happening is there was quite a lot of... He, he was living in a part of Vancouver called the downtown east side, which is a very notorious part of Vancouver. It's got a very high concentration of people with addiction problems. And um, he noticed that lots of people, because the police were cracking down, a lot of people would shoot up behind like dumpsters and things. But obviously, if you're shooting up behind a dumpster, and you start to overdose, no one sees you, and then they just find your body. So he had the simple idea. He gathered together a load of the homeless street addicts, and he said, when we're not using, which is most of the time, even for homeless users... Why don't we just patrol the alleyways? We'll, we'll drop a timetable. We'll patrol the alleyways. And if we spot someone overdosing, we'll call an ambulance, right? People were a bit skeptical, but they were like, they liked Bud. Everyone liked Bud. So they were like, okay, we'll try it. 
So they started doing it. And over the next few months, the death toll on the downtown east side started to really fall. And people were, you know, really uh, surprised. And, and I think it also had this psychological effect where the addicts, people with addiction problems thought, you know, maybe we're not the pieces of crap everyone says we are. Maybe we can, we can do something. Hmm. So they set up an organization called the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, Vandu. And Bud had learned in the library that in Frankfurt, in Germany, they'd opened um, safe injecting rooms for drug users, and it really significantly reduced the death toll. So he was like, well, we've got to do that here. But the mayor of Vancouver at the time, this guy called Philip Owen, who's run as a right-winger, um, he's from a very rich family, he's been like Mitt Romney, if you Mitt Romney, he's a very rich, privileged family, and he's run, okay, not like Trump, but like Romney, had run a campaign saying the local, all the drug users should be taken and put in the local military base and never let out, right? So he was not on their side. But they were like, okay, we're going to persuade Philip Owen to do this. And what they did is, everywhere Philip Owen went, they followed him with a coffin. This group of drug users just followed him with a coffin, and the coffin had written on it something like, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injecting room? Wow, powerful. And they, and they followed him everywhere he went. Every time he spoke at a public meeting, they stood up and they said, who's going to die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injecting room? Hmm. One time, Dean Wilson, who was one of the key people in Bandu, stood up and said, do you remember the woman who at the last meeting asked you who will die next before we open a safe injecting room? Well, it turned out to be her because you haven't done it. Mm. And one day, Philip Owen, to his eternal credit, said, who are these people? Yeah, he'd never met any drug addicts, didn't know anything about this. So he just went and spent loads of time on the downtown east side and got to know a lot of people with addiction problems. And then he went to meet Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist who was very good on this issue. And then he came back to Vancouver and he held a press conference. And he had with him the chief of police, the chief coroner, and a representative of the addicts and a load of addicts in the audience. He said, I'm never going to speak about addiction again without having these guys with me because they know a lot better than me. And we're going to open the first safe injecting room in North America. We're going to, we're going to have the most compassionate drug policies in the world. And things are going to change around here. So they opened the first safe injecting room and his conservative party were so horrified they deselected him as their candidate and his political career ended. But he was the guy, they, the right winger they selected was actually beaten by a more liberal person who then became the mayor, kept the injecting room open. And when I went there, it was, again, more than 10 years since this had opened. It's called Insight. And the death toll from the, on the downtown east side, I think the average life expectancy had increased by 10 years, was what the coroners say, which is an extraordinary increase. You know, I mean, you, you just don't get changes in life expectancy like that very often. Um, and um, Philip, I went to see Philip Owen, the mayor who did it, the uh, former mayor. And, he t you know, even though it ended his career, he told him it was the proudest thing he'd ever done. And he would sacrifice his entire political career all over again. He'd say for all these lives and I got to know Bud Osborne the Homeless Street Addict who started this and he, he actually died about a year after I met him I really urge people to listen to the interview with him on the book's website um, he's a, he was a really remarkable person and when he died they sealed off the streets of the downtown east side where he had lived as a homeless person and they had this amazing memorial service and you know a lot of the people there knew that they were alive because of what Bud had started and because they had joined this struggle and it really made me think you know like it's very easy to get pessimistic about this but you know, everyone listening to this program is more powerful than Bud Osborne was when he started that, right? He was a homeless street addict. Sure. He didn't sit there feeling sorry for himself. He didn't give up. He didn't wait for someone else to do it. He started where he stood and he began. And because of what he did, you know, the Canadian, the, the previous Conservative government in Canada, led by Stephen Harper, now thankfully gone, um, wanted to shut down the injection room. They went to the Canadian Supreme Court and the Canadian Supreme Court ruled that people with addiction problems have a right to life and that includes a right for a safe place to use drugs that will never be taken away now right this incredible transformation begins with one person appealing to the people around him with love and compassion and lots of people joined him and that's how it succeeded so when i get disheartened i think a lot about bud and i think okay 
you know, he didn't he didn't just give up, right? He he, he did what he could, and which was a lot, right? And so I think, and he did, he achieved extraordinary things. So I think you know, all of us together can create extraordinary transformations, but it requires us to come together and not in, you know, Facebook groups, but in actual groups and not nothing against Facebook groups, but, you know, it needs to come together physically and we need to be face-to-face with people and we need to be arguing for change together, uh, not in this atomized, fragmented, screaming at each other on social media way, but actually through these appeals to love and compassion. That's how the gay transformation happened, the revolution, how gay people are treated. It's how the transformation in all these places that I've been talking about happen with, towards people with addiction problems. It happens face-to-face. We, we, you know, we, 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 we can do that. Absolutely. Compelling. So, Johan, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been amazing. This has been quite an education in a relatively short period of time. And I know it's late your time, so I, I really appreciate all your time. So I'd like to ask you any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners, Johan? I'll just say to people that you are powerful. We're living in a culture that is telling us we can't do anything. We're powerless. You know, shut up, you know, or, or just, you know, your job is to be the, the person cheering at the Trump rally or whatever. You are really powerful. Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, said the never doubt that concerted bands of ordinary citizens can, can change things. It's the only thing that ever has. You know, so you, you have agency, you have power, you can turn to the people around you. There are lots of other people around you who feel the same as you, uh, who also feel disorientated and frightened and powerless and want to find their power. And you will find that power together. And people are doing that all over the One of the really encouraging things about the last terrible last six months has been, or really since, well, for me, since Brexit, is how many people are banding together and are, we're not just sitting back. You know, I, I flew uh, through San Francisco airport the day of the, the day of Trump's immigration ban. And it was one of the most moving things I've ever seen, seeing that airport being flooded by people, you know, chanting, let them in, let them in. Just use this moment when you suddenly felt this incredible relief. You thought, okay, Maybe something bad's going to happen, but we're not going to just sit here and take it. We're not going to do that. Um, and and the, the kind of antibodies of of, of, of of a better way of living and a better way of being with each other and thinking about each other are there and are being activated. And the more of us join in, in these different forms of, and that may not be your issue, but whatever it is, the, 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 the more optimistic we become, we, these, are, these are infectious things. We join together and we find hope together. And sitting alone screaming on Twitter is not going to make you feel hopeful, but joining with other people, it's going to make you feel worse, actually, really a lot worse. <laughs> Some stuff about social media in my next book, but the, the, this stuff will make you feel better. Um, so yeah, you are powerful, would be my main message. People, I've referred to the website a few times, so people want to listen to interviews with lots of the people we've talked about, including Billy Holiday's friends, and Bud Osborne, Home Street Addison, lots of other people. Um, then go to www.chasingthescream, and it's scream as in arrr, uh, .com, and they can follow me on Twitter. It's at J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I-1-0-1. And they can also, the book has a very active Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash chasing the screen. This concludes our three-part series with Johan Hari, New York Times bestselling author of Chasing the Screen. Johan has talked with us about the war on drugs, how it started, and why it isn't working today. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. 
This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.